Good morning. It's good to see you today. I remember it well. I was sitting in an aisle seat in the center aisle um, about halfway back. And uh, it was a Sunday morning. And the best way of describing what I was experiencing going into that day was I was riding the crest of the wave. I was a young guy. Obviously, it wasn't here. It was uh, uh, an upstart church, a non-denominational church in the northern part of Topeka uh, that the church was only about two and a half years old. And I had been going there for two or three months. I had just given my life to Christ. And life was good. My newfound faith, it was giving me a peace that I had never experienced before as a 17-year-old. And you would think, well, what does a 17-year-old have to be all troubled about? But, you know, that's all relative, the way that works. And, uh, and I, was just, I was just experiencing something I'd never experienced before over those three months or so. And I felt like, you know, one, one of the big things about it all was, was I felt like I had direction in life now. I knew what I wanted to do. You know, because when you're in the junior, senior year time uh, of your life, you know, you get all these questions by relatives. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go to college? You know, what are you going to do as a career? All that kind of stuff. And, you know, and I was kind of sorting through that kind of stuff. But now it was just like, man, it was crystal clear. I had, I had a defined purpose. I had direction in life. And I had this peace. And it was in the middle of this church service when it happened. I don't remember the month. I don't remember what the sermon was about that particular Sunday. But boy, I sure remember the feeling, the emotion of that moment when it happened. The guy up front was taking prayer requests. The way it's done a lot of times in the smaller churches is they take prayer requests from the floor. You've perhaps have experienced that before, just asking people, anyone have a prayer request? And someone would shout out, raise their hand and shout out what their prayer request was. And, and, and uh, so he was doing that, and he took several prayer requests. And then he asked everyone to bow their head and pray along with him. And so I bowed my head and was praying. And partway into the prayer, all of a sudden, the thought, a thought that was totally foreign, that I had not experienced before, but now it invaded my mind. And it was a thought, what if all of this that we're doing is a sham? What if this is all bogus and it's not real? What if right now, while he's praying, and I've got my head bowed and my eyes closed, what if there are a number of people around me that their eyes are open and they're looking at me with a grin, thinking, man, look how gullible he is. He really is falling for all this stuff. I mean, now that I say that, it sounds like a silly thought, but that is the thought that occurred to me. And the thing was, that was just an entry thought because there were multiple other thoughts that started flooding in. As the morning went on and the preacher got up and was preaching that morning, then I started wondering, as he would read a passage of Scripture from the Bible, I started wondering, how do we know that this book that we call the Bible, how do we know this wasn't just written 300 years ago? Not 2,000 years ago. Maybe it was just written 300 years ago. And someone was just trying to organize a religion, found a religion. So they cooked up this whole story. And how do we know that's not the case? How, how do we know, even if this was written back in the first century, as far as the New Testament goes, 
how do we know that the way it reads today, 2,000 years later, even remotely resembles the way it was originally written? How do we know? These were the kind of thoughts that were finding their way right in the middle of a church service, of all things, in my mind. It even led to, how do I know that Jesus rose from the grave? Maybe that part was added on a couple hundred years later. Maybe there wasn't even a Jesus to begin with. How do I know God exists? Whoa, even getting to the big questions there. And you know, that really stirred things up inside of me and and really troubled me. Those are some of the questions that I then struggled with, not just that week, but for the weeks following, for the months following. Now, I was always a person that asked lots of questions, you know, when, uh, when, when I first started uh, investigating, you know, Christianity. Um, I asked lots of questions, but boy, I, I ratcheted that up and I asked a lot more questions now. You know, because I was struggling with some of these different thoughts. What, what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about doubts. And up until that point in time, on that particular day, for whatever reason, I can pinpoint it on that particular day that it was almost like the floodgates opened and all of a sudden the doubts just come pouring in. And you know the way doubts are. Doubts are pretty unsettling. All right, I had this problem last service. Uh, it's not advancing for me. Uh, doubts are, are pretty unsettling. The very first book that I bought after buying a Bible a few months earlier, the very next book was, back in that time, was a fellow by the name of Josh McDowell, which was kind of the current day Lee Strobel, you know, of of uh, the 1970s, and uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, you know, I bought that book, and man, I just poured over that book because I was looking for answers. I was trying to deal with some of these doubts that I was struggling with. Some of you in here today, maybe you can relate to this. Wrestling with doubts isn't anything new, and it's certainly not something isolated that only happens to a person here or there it's something that probably all of us at one point in time have found ourselves struggling with some doubts. It might surprise you of some of the places in the Bible you actually see doubts surfacing. Let me show you one. This one, this one will blow you away if you're not familiar with this. This is Matthew chapter 28. This is after Jesus' ministry, after having spent three plus years with the disciples, after his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, after his resurrection appearances. All of that stuff has happened. This is at the very end of Matthew's gospel, and here's what we read in Matthew 28. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. It says 11 disciples, where originally there was 12, but by this point in time, Judas Iscariot, you know what happened to Judas Iscariot. He's no longer with them. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped. But some doubted. I find that very intriguing. This was after the resurrection. And, and they saw Jesus. They worshiped Jesus on this occasion, this day. But some of them that were there struggled with doubts. So, so I mean, it's something that goes way back. People struggled with you know, in times past, maybe a more familiar passage is Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, the disciples were traveling across the Sea of Galilee in a boat and a storm hit. And you'll remember the storm was so severe that uh, many of the disciples, if not all of them, thought they were going to capsize and they were going to drown. Even the seasoned fisher fishermen among them, you know, were, were scared for their lives. And in the midst of the waves and the wind and the rain and all of this, 
Someone spotted a figure walking out on the water, and it was Jesus walking out to them. One of the miracles of Jesus. And Peter didn't believe initially when someone said, that's the Lord. And he said, he said, if that's the Lord, then beckon me to come out to you. And Jesus, sure enough, invited him to come out. So Peter stepped over the side of the boat and took a couple steps toward Jesus. But then Peter got distracted and he started looking at all the, the waves and all of this that, that was taking place. And he started sinking. And it's at that moment this verse plays out. It says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So, yeah, even among the apostles, some of the most notable of the apostles, like Peter, struggled with uh, doubt. The thing that you notice when you're reading in that chapter is that as a result of all of that, Jesus didn't say, okay, um, we're going to give you a pink slip. I mean, you're on the brink of being kicked out of the group because of your doubt. Jesus didn't do that because Jesus didn't treat people harshly that struggled with doubt. As a matter of fact, a little bit later in the New Testament, in one of the shortest letters that is found in the New Testament, it's the short letter of Jude. It's only one chapter long. We find this statement. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. And if I'm paraphrasing that, I'd say, those that doubt, cut them a little slack. I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's part of what Jude's saying here. Cut them a little slack, people who doubt. Don't jump their case. Don't chastise them because of their doubts, their spiritual doubts. Be merciful to them. So whether a person has been a believer for a month or two or whether a person has been a believer for many years, the possibility exists that doubts will surface and trouble and trouble you to one degree or another. As a matter of fact, what I have found is that sometimes people that are kind of on the outside in who are considering taking the plunge and becoming a follower of Christ, but yet they haven't really committed to that yet, they're still in that mode of kicking the tires of Christianity, still investigating things. Sometimes the very thing that's holding them up as much as anything else are doubts. They're struggling with some doubts that they're having a hard time getting past. Well, it's because of all of these reasons and some more, we are starting a brand new series of messages today. It's a series that will take us all the way through May and all the way through June. It's a nine-part series where we're going to be looking at some questions. So many questions. That's the title of it. And I would venture to guess that there will be some of the questions that we're going to be dealing with in this series that describe to a T some of the doubts that you have or maybe presently are wrestling with. And so those messages, you're going to feel that they're really pertinent. But then there's going to be, and it's almost guaranteed that this will be the case, there's going to be a couple or a few messages that are dealing with certain types of uh, questions and doubts that you'll think, well, I've never really struggled with that. But my point that I want to make clear to you today is that the likelihood is you know someone who has. You either in your extended family or a co-worker or a classmate, you, you know someone that this is the very thing that's tripping them up, this particular issue, even though it hasn't been an issue for you. And so we want this service or, or this series, we want this series to help benefit you in strengthening your faith, but we also want it to equip you so that you'll be able to reach out and help others around you as you share your faith and witness to them. As a matter of fact, this is a great series to invite a friend to. You know, someone that you know, that you've tried to work with and tried to influence toward Christ. This is a great series to invite them to come and to sit in on. What we believe, let me start the whole series off by saying this. What we believe in this book, this is true 
and reasonable. This is true and reasonable. Now, those aren't my words, even though it appears on the outline and I put them up here on the screen. Um, but true and reasonable, these are actually the Apostle Paul's words. We look in Acts chapter 26 and we read about a conversation that Paul had with Governor Festus and King Agrippa. Now, Paul had been arrested. There were some, some uh, accusations brought against him, and so he was put under arrest. But Festus was really wrestling with, what, what is the basis of all of this? And Paul's already appealed to Rome to go to Caesar, and so Festus needs to have some idea of how to summarize this when he sends the prisoner, Paul, on to Rome. And so when he finds out that King Agrippa's coming through town, he invites King Agrippa to sit down with him and to hear Paul, to hear what Paul's got to say as Paul tells his story. And so what we read in Acts chapter 26 is Paul is basically telling his story. And in the process of doing that, he references the resurrection of Jesus. And as soon as he starts saying something about the resurrection of Jesus, then Festus is just like, oh, you're crazy. That's crazy talk. What are you talking about, Paul? You've gone insane. And, and Paul's response, and you see it there, I've bolded it on the screen. Paul says, what I am saying is true and reasonable. And then Paul goes on to say, this wasn't done in a corner somewhere. That's his way of saying, you can check this out further on your own. You can investigate it because it's rooted in history. It's actually happened, and there are people that will back that up. You know, one of the things that we've been saying around here at Crossroads, we've been saying this for over 27 years, ever since we first started as a church, is that we are not and we never want to be known as a church that you have to check your brains at the door before you come in. We don't want people having a blind faith. We want people walking in and keeping their eyes open and thinking things through. What is it that, that is found both in the Old Testament and Jesus reiterated in the New Testament? He said that the second greatest command of all the commands is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind and all of your strength. You don't have to check your brains at the door before you become a follower of Jesus. Keep your brains. Ask your questions. Think through the matters of faith. And yeah, at times you're going to have a bit of a, a challenge to grasp some of it, and you're going to sometimes have questions, and when one question gets answered, it's going to raise two or three other questions. That's fine. That's fine. Don't check your brains at the door. Christianity is a matter of faith, but it is not a matter of blind faith. All right, so having said that, Let's deal with the most fundamental question of all. Let's use that to start the series. How do I know God exists? I think that's a good place to begin. How do I know God exists? There's three reasons why this matters. One reason, there it is. Whoa, now, oh, what? Are you helping me back there? It's like it either doesn't work or it really works. All right. One of the reasons why this matters is that without God, there is no ultimate purpose or meaning in life. Now, I want you to think this through a little bit. And the more you think it through, the more it's going to make sense what I'm saying here. Carl Sagan was a guy who died in 1996. Some of you recognize that name immediately. Others of you, you know, it might be a little, you know, maybe you heard it, but you don't know what exactly. He's the author of the book Cosmos, all right? Now, he denied being an atheist, although he was an atheist. He denied being an atheist, but yet at the same time, he frequently ridiculed people with religious beliefs. He thought that people with religious beliefs were foolish. However... 
Carl Sagan, his closest friends, they all described him as an atheist. So he was an atheist. Well, he wrote this book, Cosmos, and the very first sentence, the opening statement in the book was this. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That was his beginning point. That's kind of just set, set in the, the, the premise for which everything else he was going to say was based on. He believed that humans should move beyond the age-old belief that life, um, that life was a special creation of a personal God. He believed that humans were simply an evolutionary accident. The way that he described it, and this is the way a lot of people remember uh, this particular phrase that he used uh, really stuck with him, a moat of dust in the morning sky. That's the way he described our lives and our world that we live in. A mote of dust in the morning sky. Think about it. If we are the result of a chance reaction of chemicals, at some particular point in time, you know, long, 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 long ago, certain chemicals kind of combined, and all of a sudden, a living organism started, and over a, a large passage of time, that organism um, evolved into more complex forms until eventually we have a human being. If we are the result of that, of just a chance reaction, then we have no reference point that gives meaning to our lives because we're just an accident. We just happen to be here. So in that sense, we are no more significant than maybe a swarm of mosquitoes except we walk around on two legs and we can talk. Here about a year, year and a half ago, I did a series of messages on the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I didn't say it back then when I did that series, um, but I really didn't like that series. I didn't like that whole study that, you know, I mean, I felt like that was just a real downer. Um, Ecclesia. I know it ends on a high note, but so much of it is just, oh my, it's depressing. Solomon is the one that wrote that. Solomon, he knew better than this because he was David's son, but for whatever reason, Solomon just kind of discarded the things that his dad modeled and tried to teach him. And I, I've got some ideas of why he discarded that and some of the influence that he allowed to get the upper hand in his life. But anyway, he kind of kicked to the side some of the things that, that his dad tried to, to teach him. And he was trying to find purpose and meaning in life with leaving God out of the equation. And that's why chapter after chapter after chapter, he keeps using some of these phrases, meaningless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He's trying to summarize what life is like, what he was discovering life to be like. As he would try all these different ventures, these big, because he had endless supplies of money and all of this stuff, as he would try all these building, you know, projects or, or accumulation of wealth or or sex, or, I mean, all of those kinds of things are referenced in the book of Ecclesiastes, and every time he's drawing the same conclusion, it's all meaningless. It's all without meaning. It's chasing after the wind. But then at the very end of the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, he brings God back into the equation in the last couple of verses. And, and then he states the purpose and the meaning and, and everything that, that can be found. You know, and it's just like, man, why did you have to go through all that other stuff if you'd just been paying attention to your dad? You know, but, but he did. He went through all that stuff. But at least by the end, he was able to connect the dots. You know, if there is no God, then the best that you can hope for, the best that I can hope for, is kind of along the lines of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, he's talking about if there was no resurrection of Jesus, but it would apply to what it is that we're talking about here. 
these words, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there is no God, then we better live it up while we got the chance of living it up because the chance is going to be gone before we know it. So let's eat and drink because soon we're going to die. Here's another reason why it matters, you know, whether or not there is a God. There we go. Without God, there are no absolute standards or values. There are no absolute standards or values. Who is to say what is right and what is wrong? I mean, who's to make that determination? In our society, we understand that certain behaviors are unacceptable while other ones are expected. But who has the right to determine that if there's no supreme being? Who makes that call? Who gives someone the right to tell me what I can do and what I can't do? Is it the person with power? Is that how it's determined? Might makes right? That's a scary thought. But yet, if you've studied any at all about history, even current history, you, you know full well that there have been, you know, some groups in some countries that that's what they basically have lived under. And uh, it is not good. That whole idea of might makes right, that whoever's the most powerful can force everybody to follow their rules. Now, here in this country, we fall back on you know, certain phrases like, like uh, certain unalienable rights. You know, we, we like that. We like the sound of that, especially the more we understand what that's in reference to. Certain unalienable rights that we have. That comes from the Declaration of Independence back in the very founding of this country. But if you look at that a little bit closer, what you discover is that that is being said in, the, in view of, in the context of the fact that we have a creator who has given us those rights. That's what the context is saying, that our creator has given us certain unalienable rights and that therefore all men are created equal. All people are created equal. We applaud that, we believe in that, but that's the context that that actually comes from. If there is no creator, if there is no God, then the reality of the matter is, on that basis, you should get to make your own rules. And I should be allowed to make my own rules. And if our rules collide and clash with one another, so be it. That sounds like chaos. And it would be chaos. Another reason why it matters as to whether or not there is a God is because without God, there is no hope. And this really is the bottom line. This isn't that complicated to think through as far as the implications are concerned. If our existence is just the result of random chance, that just sometime way back in the history of time, certain chemicals or whatever in a pool of ooze, you know, combined and lower life form uh, kicked into being, which eventually over time led to, to human beings. If, if, if all of that is true, then death represents the end of our existence. Death is the end. There's nothing on the other side of death. That should be troubling. I know I find it troubling. I mean, there are certain verses in the Bible that we really hang our hope on. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first verse. Actually, you can back up into chapter 4 and the following verses in chapter 5. Uh, the whole context here is talking about this. But it says, For we know that when this tent we live in, our body here on earth, is torn down, God will have a house in heaven for us to live in, a home he himself has made, which will last forever. So what he's doing is he's using the analogy of your body being like a tent. And tents are temporary. You, you can enjoy using a tent for a period of time. 
And eventually the tent will deteriorate, the seams will rot, it'll start ripping, it'll be leaking, and all that kind of stuff will be taking place. And the tent will be spent. Its life is over. Well, that's what Paul is saying regarding our bodies. Our bodies, you know, they say the average lifespan for women is somewhere around, what, 78 to 80, and for guys, it's like 76 to 78, something, something along in those ideas that that's the average time that we have to live in this tent. Now, for some people, it ends up being more, and for other people, it ends up being less. But, but there, there is not an indefinite amount of time that you're going to be in that body, inhabiting that body. And there's not an indefinite amount of time for me. We, we've had a couple of significant uh, funerals here in recent days. Friday, we had Kevin Patrick. For those of you that know Kevin Patrick, Kevin and his wife, Kathy, had been a part of this church for 18 years. And uh, he became uh, diagnosed as being terminal a number of months ago and was put on hospice. But he was still coming to church when he was physically able to. And then when he started losing his eyesight and stuff like that because cancer was spread, you know, all through his body, um, then he was kind of hit and miss of being able to make it, you know, to church. And Kevin passed away and we had, we had his funeral just Friday. But, you know, passages like this are the kind of passages that I was referencing in the middle of the, the message, the life celebration that we had here in this room. Because we have hope. Because of Kevin's faith, we know that the grave is not a dead end. That there is, there is hope that goes beyond that. You know, and scriptures like this shed light on that. Two weeks ago exactly on Friday, we had Rod Graham pass away. And Rod had been not uh, as many years a part of the church, but still um, he and his family for a number of years had been a part of the church. He too was a man of faith and he passed away. And so two weeks ago, we celebrated his life, and, and part of what we did was, you know, talked about the hope that we have here. We're not saying goodbye. We're just saying see you later, you know, because of the hope we have that there is life after death. But the reality of the matter is, if there is no God, we got to get rid of that verse. Because that verse is not true. And all the verses like it are not true. If there is no God. So if you happen to contract some kind of a disease, if you end up being diagnosed with terminal cancer, if you die a premature death because of a car wreck or because of a heart attack, well, I'm sorry. That's just the luck of the draw. Your life will be shortened than what maybe other people around you will live. There's no hope of anything else because this life, all our eggs are in one basket. It's the here and now, and that is it. So you see, it is significant. Is there a God? <laughs> it does matter. So back to our question, how do I know God exists? Well, we know that God exists because he has revealed himself. Let me give you a couple of the ways that he has revealed himself. First of all, he has revealed himself through his creation. This is one that is talked about in the Old Testament. It's also talked about in the New Testament. I've always found it a bit interesting that as much as people talk about the existence of God and whether or not it's true, um, and on what basis do we make the decision that there really is a God? I, I find it interesting that from the very first chapter of the book of Genesis to the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, the existence of God is a given. It's never hung out there as a, a big question mark of, ooh, does he exist? And then there's not a, a chunk of scripture devoted to trying to give convincing evidence to the fact that God has existed or that God does exist. No, it's just understood that there is a God. That's the, the angle that the Bible comes from. In fact, the Bible approaches it from the standpoint that the evidence speaks for itself. I like the way David said it in the Old Testament in Psalm 14, 
the very first verse, he says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I mean, that's his take on it. He's basically saying it'd be foolish to even attempt to deny the existence of God. And basically what, what he is implying with that statement is, is that there's too much evidence to the contrary. David doesn't try to make an emotional appeal to convince people. He's, a, he's looking at it from being just a matter of common sense that there is a God. Now, in a later psalm, he does devote a little more um, space to talking about it. Um, the first four verses of Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Basically what David is saying there is that um, all of creation testifies in a universal language. You know, in spite of whatever country you're from and whatever language your people may speak, creation speaks in a universal language, and it has one very loud and clear message, and that is this, there is a creator. I am here. We are here because of our creator. That's the message that creation declares. It's the whole cause and effect thing. All of this couldn't have just appeared from nothing. There had to be a cause behind it all. Now, you know, a lot of us have been exposed to, you know, thoughts about the Big Bang Theory and, and that that is what explains, every, that was the explanation uh, that is promoted um, for the existence of everything. Now, it hasn't always been the explanation behind things, but it started really gaining some footing in the second half of the 19th century after Darwinism and all, you know, surfaced and, and definitely into the 20th century. Little by little, many scientists begin to realize that uh, um, it all did have a beginning as far as the world, as far as our solar system, as far as the Milky Way galaxy, as far as all the galaxies. They really did have a beginning. Otherwise, and this is just one of the reasons they came to that conclusion, otherwise stars like our sun, you know, and all the other ones, they would have long since ran out of fuel. They would have burned out and they would no longer, if, if we're going to say they're eternal and they have always been, well, they can't be eternal because they would have run out of fuel. So there had to be a starting point. And so people started getting more on board with this particular idea. And so now the idea is that from, a, from a, a singularity, a point of infinite density and gravity, that's where the beginning all came. An explosion took place some 14 billion years ago. And, and, and the universe around us is continuing to expand to this day. But, but this explosion explains everything. But what the Bible is saying is that the existence of the world and the existence of the universe around us all points to the existence of someone who brought it all into being and organized it and all of the individual orbits and all of this kind of stuff that's going on within the different uh, places like our solar system and within our galaxy. This is exactly what Paul was getting at in the New Testament. I told you the Old Testament and the New Testament touches on this. Paul made this statement in Romans chapter 1. He says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. We have no excuse for not believing in a divine creator. There is no excuse. There's too much evidence right in front of us. That's the point that he's trying to make. He's, he's not saying that we can know God in a personal way based on looking at the creation, but he's saying we can know that there is a God 
based on looking at creation all around us. Again, the whole cause and effect thing. Anyone wanting to deny the existence of an almighty God has got to provide an answer to one supreme question. And that question is, where did the universe come from? Where did it come from? Even the Big Bang explanation doesn't explain that. Where did that initial atom or particle of infinite density, where did that come from? See, it, it, it's not addressing that. It's avoiding the question by, by trying to get us to focus on an explosion and everything that came as a result of that. Now, I'm not going to get into talking about some of the things that we've talked about. I know I've talked about it within the last six months and maybe another time about a year or so ago. So I'm not going to dip back in to talking about the distance of the moon from the earth and the gravitational pull and the effect that that has on the tides and cleaning the shorelines and, and how that all works or the tilt of the earth on its axis, the exact distance the earth is from the sun, which makes it possible in combination with the tilt for there to be growing seasons in a much larger portion of the earth than there would have been otherwise. Um, you know, I've talked about those kinds of things, and you can read about those kinds of things. Um, one of the things that I did see as I was preparing some of my thoughts here was the influence of Jupiter. And I had never thought about this before, but, you know, the conclusion that has come about is the reason that the Earth hasn't had to deal with more asteroids than what we have is because of the gravitational influence of Jupiter. You know, any asteroids, their, their course, their direction is altered because of Jupiter. So it's almost like there's somewhat of a protector that is out there. And, of course, then you need to decide what makes more sense. Is that just accidental or is that intentional? Is that a part of God's design? I like to delve into the animal world and talk about, you know, some of that because uh, I enjoy animals. Um, uh, the woodpecker is an example here. A woodpecker just has always fascinated me. It's probably my favorite bird, that and the eagle. And uh, the woodpecker, I mean, I'm just totally fascinated by, you know, we've got a woodpecker that every year it comes around this time, so it's already been doing its thing. And, and uh, just, I mean, just endless beating its head against. Originally, the first year it did this several years ago, it was the neighbor's house. I don't know if that house is bug infested or what, but that woodpecker was was determined to get into that house. And uh, But then he started focusing his attention on this telephone pole. And now, after all these years, there's holes all over this telephone pole. But what fascinates me is how is he able to do that over and over and over and over again? And he doesn't ever get a headache. I mean, just how does that work? I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. But when you look a little bit closer, what fascinates me even more, have you ever looked, and I've talked about this a couple years ago, but do you know anything about the tongue of a woodpecker? Yeah, I want to encourage you to Google that, not now. Don't Google it now. You know, you, you can do it sometime this afternoon or this week. Or this time next Sunday, Kurt's preaching then, but, but not now. But the tongue, the tongue of a woodpecker, I mean, that thing, it ends up wrapping all the way around on the outside of the skull of a woodpecker. And then it kind of comes up and threads through the nostril, and then it shoots out through the mouth, and, and it, it kind of has a way of recoiling by doing all that or being sent out in, deep into the hole as it's searching for bugs and stuff like that. And it's just fascinating. You know, it's like, how did that evolve? I mean, how did that, was initially, was it a short tongue? And then it got a little longer? And then a little, I mean, how, how did that work? So I'm not going to show you pictures on that, but I cannot resist the temptation to show you one picture of another bug that ever since I took my boys when I had twin sons, and when they were about this big, um, we lived uh, three hours north of 
St. Louis, and I took them down to St. Louis to a creation seminar that was being held for grade school age kids. Uh, and the guy who was leading it was a fellow named Ken Ham. Some of you, that name will ring a bell. He's the guy that's behind the building of the ark. The ark, according to biblical dimensions, that's south of Cincinnati, that's Ken Ham. And so we went when Ken Ham was a younger man, you know, down to St. Louis and, and sat in on And I just figured I brought a book to read because I thought, okay, this is going to be, you know, grade school stuff. But I think I was the one sitting on the edge of my seat more than my boys were as I was hearing him talk. And, and one of the animals he talked about that I had never heard of before was this guy, the Bombardier Beetle. This guy's fascinating. This is a cross-section of his abdomen here. He's got two different chambers in his abdomen, and when the contents of those chambers unite together, there is an explosion that takes place, and there, there is a temperature that you see involved with that. Now, the way this works, so when you Google this later, when you Google this, don't just look at the image like this. Find the video. And you will find, you will find the Bombardier beetle and a frog kind of licking its lips, looking at it. And all of a sudden, the frog, its tongue comes out in lightning fashion, grabs a hold of it. And in a split second, its tongue comes out, grabs it, pulls it back in its mouth, and the frog's mouth closes. And all that happens in less than half a second. But then immediately... The frog's mouth opens again, and he spits out the bug and his tongue, because his tongue is still attached to it. His tongue, the bug, everything. And so you got this, you know, tongue laying out there, and the frog going, you know, like that. <laughs> because that, that bug just exploded inside his mouth. Now, how did that evolve? How, how did that come about? Well, originally there wasn't two chambers. There was just one that the stuff was in. Okay, that wouldn't have lasted long you know, because it would have blown up right inside the bug's body. I mean, when you, when you break some of this stuff down, it's just like how can you draw any other conclusion to some of this stuff? And I think this is what, this is what uh, uh, Paul was talking about. We're without excuse in regards to the existence of God. There's another way that God has revealed himself. It's not just through creation, but he's also revealed himself through Jesus. In many ways, this is the best and the clearest answer as to whether or not there is a God. He has visited us. You can look in the Gospels, you can look specifically at Luke and at Matthew, those Gospels, and you will read about the manger and, you know, the Christmas story as we typically think of it, you know, which makes good for children's stories and nativity scenes and stuff like that. But I, I always prefer John's Gospel because John kind of leapfrogs over the top of Bethlehem and all of that, and he goes way back, way back to the very beginning. And this is the way John starts when he's telling the story of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. A few verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just a couple verses later, later, Ah, there we go. Yeah. Then we come to verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You see, God has revealed himself to us through Jesus. This is what the Bible says. At the very end of Jesus' time with his disciples, he was talking to all of the disciples on the last full day of his life before his crucifixion. And Philip asked him a specific question. I'm glad he did because we get this as a result of the question. Jesus says, if you know me, you will also know my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the father and that's enough for us. Now, remember that verse in Jude 
says, be merciful to those who doubt. You know, I, I can just see, uh, I can just hear the tone of voice that Jesus answers Philip, and I can just see uh, the way he answers him when he says this. Have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, we know through creation that God exists. We know what God is like through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus has revealed him to us. There were multiple times in Jesus' ministry where he made it a point to drive this home with people. In, in Mark chapter 2, there was a time Jesus was in a crowded house teaching. People were standing in the doorway and everywhere. And these four guys were carrying their friend on, on a uh, stretcher um, who was paralyzed. They wanted Jesus to do a miracle, but they couldn't get him inside the house. So they went up on the roof, dug a hole, and dropped him down, through, lowered him with ropes down through the hole. And, of course, that interrupted everything that was happening on the inside. And Jesus looked at the man who was paralyzed and he looked up at his friends, and it specifically says he saw their faith. And he said, your sins are forgiven you. Immediately, some people started mumbling about this. It's like, wait a minute, he can't say that. He can't do that. Here's, here's the way it reads in the text. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, guess what? That's exactly what Jesus wanted them to be thinking. He wanted them to connect the dots and to be saying, whoa, 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 back this up a bit. You can't be saying that. Do you have that kind of authority? Only God has that authority. And then what is it that happened next? Knowing what they were mumbling, Jesus says, which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, get up, and walk? Well, it's always easier to say your sins are forgiven. There's no way of measuring that. And so then Jesus says, stand up, stand to your feet, pick up, you're caught, and walk. And everybody watched when he did just that. And what that did is it put an exclamation mark on the fact that Jesus indeed has the authority to forgive sin. He was who he was claiming to be. On another occasion in John chapter 8, Jesus, um, he, he makes a statement, and this is a good case for driving home why it is important to read all of the Bible, not just your favorite parts of the Bible or not just the New Testament of the Bible. You need to read all of the Bible. And if you've never read through the Old Testament, you need to do that. Because otherwise, stuff like this may slip past you. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Now, why such a harsh reaction to Jesus saying that? Before Abraham was born, I am. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, which all of them would have been familiar with, you immediately think about Moses at the burning bush. When God was speaking and saying, go and set my people free, lead them out of Egypt. And, and Moses said, well, if they ask me who sent me, you know, what do I tell them? What is your name? And that's when God said, I am that I am. And so ever since that time, the Jewish people, they knew that God is the great I am. And now here we have Jesus on this occasion saying, before Abraham was born, which was long ago, before Abraham was born, I am. And people understood exactly what he meant by that. He's claiming to be the voice at the burning bush. Jesus is making that claim. And that's why they picked up stones, because that was to be the punishment for blasphemy. They figured he was committing blasphemy. But the reality of the matter is he was just stating the truth because he was back at the burning bush. In fact, he was back around before then. You can see verses in Genesis chapter 1. He was there at creation. 
Colossians chapter 1 talks about him being the one that created all things. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, when he reached out and touched lepers, when he hung out with tax collectors and sinners, when he voluntarily allowed himself to be arrested and then flogged and crucified, all of that sheds light and insight for us to be able to see the heart of God. It helps us to know God better because this is who God is. God revealed himself through creation. God revealed himself through Jesus, his son. Now, there's more ways that God revealed himself, and here's a couple more, but the list could be much longer than this. He's revealed himself through his word. This which was written over a span of time of 1,500 years, multiple different continents, 40 different writers, and yet it's all one continuous, you know, themed account of how much God loves us and the extent that he's willing to go to, to restore us back to himself. The word reveals to us God. It gives us insight into him and into his heart. Changed lives. You know, this could be an argument that could be used for one more reason why it is of value to be a part of a church body, to be a part of a fellowship in times like this and, and outside of this time, like Wednesday night, that'll be advertised here in a little bit. Part of the value of building connections and relationships with others in the church is that you, you, you learn other people's stories. You gain insight into the way certain people were at one particular time by hearing the stories that they tell. But then you can compare that with who they are today and how their life is different. What's the explanation behind that? The transformation that comes from a relationship with the Lord. God doesn't leave us the same. If you can remember back to whenever that time was, however many years ago, that you first said yes to Christ, and you compare yourself then to now, there's going to be a difference. And it surely is going to be more than just that you're older now than what you were back then. But you have grown. You have changed the Spirit of God has done the work of transformation in your life, and that's what God specializes in. I mean, how do you explain a person that at one particular point in time is a bitter, self-centered, the universe revolves around them kind of person? All they ever think about is themselves, and maybe they're vulgar on top of all of that. And then they go from that to being one of the self most selfless people you will ever meet, where they're always putting other people's needs before themselves. And the words that they share are always encouraging and uplifting words. How does that kind of a change, how, how can you explain that? That's the work God can do in a person's life. That's part of the evidence that God is real and he is active in people's lives. And that's part of the blessing of getting close to others in the fellowship and learning their stories and knowing, wow, you, never, you weren't always like the way you are now. You know, and, and, and you won't learn that on just a casual greeting. You learn that as trust develops and as you share in one another's lives. And you gain that insight. And as a result of that, you give glory to God. Because you know he's the reason why lives are transformed. Now, the devil, he's going to do what he can do to blind you to all this because the devil wants the doubts to exist and fester and grow. Yeah, he, he doesn't want those doubts going anywhere. He'll try to blind you to this. But the fact is, the evidence is there. We just need to open our eyes to see it, open our ears to pick up on it. And, and this week, part of your assignment, besides doing a little bit of Googling, is is to open your eyes this week. 
Notice stuff that maybe you've been taking so much for granted right underneath your nose. But notice it this week and be like, oh, that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 1, verse 20. It all adds up so much clearer now. The evidence is there. We just need to open our eyes to see it and appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word, and I'm thankful for what is contained in your word and the way it can impact our lives and and it just draws us closer to you with a deeper love and appreciation for all that you are and what all you represent um, and the difference that you continue to make in our lives. So we we just thank you, Lord, for that. And I pray that this week um, you will tap us on the shoulder draw our attention to things that maybe otherwise we wouldn't have noticed so that we might be a little more alert than normal to pick up on some of the things that Paul or David were talking about when they talked about the, the world around us testifying of its creator. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.